Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Campfire Conversation Podcast. I'm your host, Cole Kelly. Having worked in the summer camp industry for the past two decades, I'm convinced that summer camp professionals have a unique view on kids and young adults. I am certain that the stories that they've earned by working with and alongside thousands of kids and staff members from literally all over the world can be useful to parents, teachers, coaches, and mentors back home. So each week, I spend some time around the digital campfire with the leaders and thinkers of the summer camp world. We share stories, we laugh, we learn together, which really, when you think about it, is what we've been doing around campfires for as long as campfires have been around. So I hope that you'll spend the next few minutes around this digital campfire with me to see how you can take some of the magic and fun of summer camp and apply it to your life back home. This Campfire Conversation podcast is brought to you by our friends at Scope, who send hundreds of children from financially disadvantaged families to summer camp each year. Kate and I have supported Scope since our first summer in camping 17 years ago, and I'm thrilled they're supportive of this podcast. Stick around to the end of this Campfire Conversation to learn more about Scope, or press pause and head on over to them on the web at scopeusa.org. I'm so excited to introduce you to a person from whom I have learned a lot over the past two decades in camping. I first met Bob Ditter at a training session following my initial summer as a camp director, and man, did I need his wisdom. Thankfully, he has been generously sharing that wisdom with camp people all over the country for many, many years. Bob is a child, adolescent, and family therapist from Boston. I've heard Bob speak at conferences all over the country, keep many of his books in my immediate access library right behind my desk, and read just about everything he writes in Camping Magazine. And don't worry, I'm going to give you links to everything in the show notes on our website, campfireconversation.com. For this Campfire Conversation, Bob and I talk about the rise of anxiety in our society and how we can use what we've learned at summer camp to combat anxiety's rise back home. I know I'm going to learn a lot about anxiety from Bob, and I hope you will too. All right. Well, Bob Ditter, thank you so much for joining me around the campfire. Excited to be here. Thanks for asking. Awesome. So now I first met you, and you probably don't remember this, when I worked for a company called Camp Group. Uh, We were having an off-site meeting in the Berkshires. I think this was 2002 or 2003, Um, and I was just blown away that I mean, there was a person that really just thought so deeply about camp. How did you get involved in camp? Well, that's a great question. First of all, a lot of people don't know this, but I actually never went to camp when I was a kid. Really? I didn't even know. Yeah, I had no idea that camp existed as a possibility. And my guess is, had I gone, I probably would have been one of the most homesick kids there. But uh, (laughs) I never got to find out. Um, I was actually uh, in school up in upstate New York at uh, Union College, and I was volunteering as a uh, big brother to a young fellow who was uh, had cerebral palsy, and he had been um, affiliated with this hospital, uh, rehabilitation hospital for young people uh, in Schenectady, New York. And there was a pediatric nurse there who was clearly a camp person, and she had this idea that she was going to build a camp for kids who had various kinds of physical disabilities and take them out into the woods for a couple of weeks and give them, you know, the time of their life and give their parents some respite care. 
And uh, first of all, I had no idea what she was talking about. And other people thought she was crazy because back in those days, this was 1969, people didn't do that. I mean, camp was much more of a mainstream uh, kind of thing. So, you know, she was the kind of person who, when you told her you had doubts, she just, you know, doubled her efforts to prove you wrong. And sure enough, she had people donate time or money or trades. She had tradesmen come and she built a little camp called Camp Clover Patch, which is actually still there. And at the ripe old age of 19, I went off to camp for the first time <laughs> as a counselor. That, by the way, that's in quotes. All right. <laughs> and because I had no idea what I was doing. Not only that, she asked me, would I be her program director? And my answer was, <laughs> sure, what's that? But well, you'll find out. So, um, but it was terrific. I mean, we just had a blast. I mean, you have to understand, these are kids who were, you know, they were in crutches and wheelchairs and had braces. It took us a half an hour to an hour to get these kids ready in the morning for breakfast because, you know, we had to get them out, most of them with their beds, and, you know, we had to get them into their braces, and it was just really kind of a procedure, and we loved it. And anyway, so that's when I got the camp bug. Um, and there's a lot more to that story than I'll go into right now, but it was it was so much fun. And so when I got I was when I graduated I uh, from college, I went to Cape Cod and I was working actually in the summer there and needed a job for the off season for the winter. And I'm sorry, I was working off season mm -hmm. as a uh, as a teacher and needed a job for the summer. So I got a job as a shop counselor at a boys' sailing camp in Orleans, Mass., called Camp Viking. It's not there any longer. It, it closed many years ago. Mm -hmm. And I was hired, actually, for one month because they had a larger enrollment for the month of July mm -hmm. and um, a much smaller enrollment for the month of August. So I signed on, but the shop counselor, unfortunately, got caught with some <clears throat> contraband, so he got fired. And I was immediately promoted to shop counselor, which is I learned how things work at camp. You know, if they need you, you're promoted. Without a doubt, yes. <laughs> you can do and, it. And, <laughs> uh, yeah. So in 1974, I became the shop counselor. And, um, and in 1976, I was the assistant director. And I call that uh, story, I snowed them really well. <laughs> uh, because if they really knew that I didn't know what I was doing, they would never have made me assistant director. But so that began my lifelong, I would say my adult lifelong love of camp. And um, one of the things, of course, that, that I saw firsthand was how kids would come in afraid or timid or homesick and just blossom. I mean, really just open up and make friends they never thought they would make and do things they never thought they would do. Like, for example, at a boy sailing camp, they would sail a boat. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, you take a nine or a 10 year old and you tell them they're going to skip her a boat. And they're like, no way, I can't do that. And, you know, within two years, that's what they're doing. So mm -hmm. it was just uh, a terrific, it, for me, it was a great laying of groundwork, as I say, for what I, you know, later became, which was a child therapist, because I had this very real as I say, in the trenches experience with kids. Um, and so I just never looked back. I, I, I always vowed that I would continue to work with camp people because I think kids learn things about themselves uh, in ways at camp that they really don't do much anywhere else. Mm -hmm. What is it about the camp community that you found that, that creates that type of experience for kids, that where they get to learn things that they would, wouldn't otherwise? 
Well, first of all, I mean, I think there are three major elements to that. First of all, it's a very kid-centered, you know, environment. It's all about the kids. I mean, a really good camp is really all about the kids, not about the staff first or not about everything else is secondary to we're here for the kids. Um, and I don't think kids really often experience an environment like that, not even if not in school, uh, not really anywhere else, where everything is really geared for them. That's number one. Number two, they're not with their parents. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously there's day camp, and that's also a very powerful uh, growing up environment. But I think that, you know, even being, you know, without your parents for the whole day for weeks at a time, and especially at resident camp, you finally learn that, wow, I really can do this by myself. I really can count on other adults. And I think uh, the third thing is that, um, you know, the adults there, I mean, where do kids who are, you know, 8, 9, 10, 11 get to hang out with kids who are 18, 19, 20, and 21? And it's okay. It's healthy. You know, that's, there really isn't that kind of cross-generational you know, contact in our society, unfortunately. And I think it just has benefits for both sides. I think staff people benefit from it as much as, as the, uh, as the campers do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting that the feedback we get at the end of the summer, you always get the loudest feedback from the, the young staff members who had never had that type of experience where, you know, they always say, yeah. this, this opened me up. Like I didn't know that, like a place like this could exist or that I could be that way. And I feel so much better about myself having done this you know, whereas the kid went home and, you know, hopefully told mom and dad it was amazing. I can't wait to go back. They haven't, they weren't able to express the, the feelings that way until they become counselors and they look back on their first time as a staff member. It's like, holy cow, I had no idea it was this cool and this hard. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. And this hard. Exactly. Yeah. So you've been involved in camping since the 60s. You've been really involved, you know, running camps and, and working and thinking with camps since the 70s. How have you seen the kids change over, over time? Well, you know, that's interesting. I, I, I actually have seen parents change more than I've seen kids change. Interesting. Uh, or at least, yeah, or at least as much. I think parents um, in the 70s, 80s, and even, well, I would say by the, by the early 90s it was changing, but I think parents were um, much more trusting of of authority um, back in those days so that if a camp director said, look, we can handle this, you know, we, we know how to handle your kid. Uh, most parents, you know, they might've felt a little queasy about what their kid might be going through in terms of homesickness or struggling to meet lens or whatever, but they always gave the benefit of the doubt to the camp director. I think parents today are so uh, eager to please their kids and, 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 you know, frightened by all they read in the news that um, I think they've, they've hovered. I mean, I don't think that's anything new. I mean, we have that term helicopter parents or snowplow parents mm-hmm. or whatever. And I think that uh, what that has done is it's um, communicated to kids that the world isn't safe. So, um, and I think that's number one. The second thing that I've seen is in kids, which is that kids have less free time and uh, it's much more structured. It's much more... Um, you know, organized play as opposed to free, spontaneous play. And I think what that means is that kids don't really often know what to do in downtime and they haven't had a chance to just experiment or to explore or uh, invent their own games. And uh, I sometimes think their imaginations aren't as uh, vibrant as kids from years ago. I remember when I had a cabin of of boys, they were 10-year-olds, 
this was 1974, you know, one of the most fun things those kids did was during rest hour, they made, they took all their sheets and made tents in the cabin. You know, they, <laughs> yep. make it, they had this elaborate fort system and, you know, and this, this whole kind of uh, password and code words and who could go into what section. And, you know, they invented the whole thing out of nothing. Yep. And, um, and today I don't see kids, you know, doing that as much. It's not their fault. I just think that they've been so programmed. And I think the thing we've seen in the last two years is so many boys in particular who've been playing Fortnite, you know, for hours and hours who are losing, um, you know, that, 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 Face, that language of facial expression. They, mm. They're not looking at their friends. They're looking at a screen, and they're playing with other kids that they don't even see. Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that I, at camps that I visited last summer, and I visited quite a number last summer, mm-hmm. you know, it was the boys who were 9, 10, 11, and 12 who were struggling because, first of all, they were restless. It was almost like they were on withdrawal, and they didn't know how to make friends. They had yeah. a real hard time making that adjustment. That's amazing. The um, I, I heard somebody talk about a, a study. I believe it was from uh, University of Pennsylvania, talk, talking about how the the brain in adolescent and, and pre-adolescent boys, and, and even some for the girls, really cannot look at a, another face and determine the true emotion. Whereas adults can look at it and and almost with 100% accuracy say, oh, they're mad, they're sad, they're angry. You know what it might be, but it has something to do with I think the prefrontal yeah, cortex. Yeah, that that comes out of the University of Pennsylvania, actually. At the, and I think Adam Grant had something to do with that study. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had the, we actually have a test we call the test of uh, emotional uh, uh, empathy. It's an empathy test, and basically, it's can you by looking at faces can you accurately describe the emotion that's being displayed? Mm-hmm. So we've had that test around for a while. And what they did is they took that test and they compared it to results from, say, maybe 10 years ago in the same age group to now. And what we found is that, that boys in particular, although girls to some extent, but boys in particular have had a real drop in their ability to read other kids. Hmm. Like, oh, maybe this comment I'm making right now isn't cool because that kid is grimacing or looks like he's ready to kill me or whatever. Um, and uh, so that nonverbal communication uh, that reading facial expressions has, has definitely dropped. Well, and I would think that, and I don't know the science behind this or, or even if it would be true, but I would think that living in a small community at camp, whether it be day camp or certainly residential camp, you, you actually have to start learning that just to kind of get by. Yeah, it's a sort of survival thing, right? Right. No, I think it's true. I think when you're immersed um, in an environment where it's kids that you have to relate to and you have to collaborate and have to compromise and you have to get along with each other. Uh, and by the way, that can be really painful for, for kids if they don't have those skills. It can be painful at first because once you're immersed in that, if you don't, you know, if you don't know that you're, you know, upsetting everybody else in your cabin because of the remarks you're making, uh, it's, it's, you know, trial and error. You learn the hard way. Uh, but yeah, I would say that it's one great way to raise uh, kids, you know, sort of uh, EQ, if you will, their mm-hmm. emotional uh, intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I would think that kids probably know that they can't figure that out, at least internally, and it might have some effect on their levels of anxiety. You know, if, if a boy or uh, a girl knows that they can't really figure out how to make a friend, they're going to be more anxious, I would think. 
probably in in certain yeah certainly in certain group situations yeah mm-hmm. um, yeah if if where you're going with that is is that one of the factors that's increasing anxiety among children today I think there are other factors that we've seen that play a much bigger role in that but. Mm. I wasn't sure if that's where you were going with it that is, or not. It is. I was, I was segueing that way, so great pickup. Um, what are, you know, as a parent, I've got, you know, two teenage boys and, and a preteen, and, and I work with, you know, over 700 kids each summer. And I'm seeing kids more and more come to us, and even staff members come to us more and more with higher levels of anxiety. What is it about, you know, our culture, our society, that, that's kind of increasing that, that level of anxiety amongst our youth? Well, let me first start with some numbers. Um, I always like the statistics. I'm a numbers guy. Mm -hmm. We know from the National Institute of Mental Health that about 25% of all kids in the United States aged 13 to 18 have been formally diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. Uh, That's huge. We're talking about one quarter of the entire kid population from 13 to 18. And... um, yeah, that's that's pretty amazing. And and there was a study done two years ago by the American College Health Association that basically said that four, about 14% of college students have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. So that's also very high. We're talking about, again, 18 to 22-year-olds. What's interesting is that I, it was, I think, 2015 where the Healthy Camps uh, group. It was a Healthy Camps uh, study that I was actually part of. Uh, I was part of the Healthy Camps group from the American Camp Association. And we we had a survey that we did with camp directors around the country. And the single greatest concern of camp directors, and that was already three, four years ago, uh, among staff was anxiety uh, in their staff. so it's there. It's there's no doubt about the fact that this is a real phenomenon. It's not just, um, you know, that. I mean, it's more than just anecdotal. We're really seeing it. I would say, my own take on this, and I've read a lot of articles on this, and I've written some articles on this. Um, I think there are three or four major um, things that are contributing to it. Among, I would say, like older kids, again, thirteen-year-olds, and uh, young adults. And the first thing, really, I think is social media. One of the things about social media is that kids um, and young adults really post kind of their best self online. And what what's happened is we've kind of gotten most of us into the habit of um, creating this, you know, wonderful life online that doesn't really correlate with what's going on in our real lives. Mm-hmm. So, and then the other thing is that kids compare themselves, you know, like, oh, so-and-so went to this party or they got into this school or they got this grade on their test or they just got bored or they're going on this trip and why am I not doing that? So I think there's this, you know, everybody sort of posts their best and then everybody else thinks they're supposed to be as good as everyone else best. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, yeah, and it's created this, you know, very um, sort of perfectionistic, overly um, sort of self-conscious sense among young adults. I see a lot of teenagers and college students in my practice, and, you know, they sort of bless and curse 
social media at the same time. It's kind of like I love it because I can you know, really stay in touch with my friends. On the other hand, I hate it because I'm always comparing myself and I'm always coming up short. Um, mm-hmm. I've even had students, you know, college students, young college students in particular, who said, I just had to get offline for like a month. I just had to stop. Right. Um, because it's very easy to become obsessed with it, but I think it's also this kind of comparing yourself. Um, and I think that has really contributed to people's sense of uh, perfectionism um, and also the sense that they don't measure up. You know, we all compare our insides to everybody else's outsides. Um, you know, it's kind of like, why don't I feel like they look, you know? And, um, and I don't think that's a very, I think that's a very unhealthy uh, trend and yeah. a very unhealthy development. We've sort of branded ourselves really online. We're, we have this sort of photoshopped mm-hmm. self. Now I heard somebody um, discuss it as a, your curated self rather than your real self. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. And it's our, it's frankly, it's our humanity that we tend to hide, you know, like it's what, it's our vulnerabilities, our doubts, our insecurities, our failures. And that's real. That's just part of life. But we've made it so that it's not okay or acceptable to share that part of ourselves. Look, I think this has been true in, among high school students forever. You know, mm-hmm. I, I remember when I was in high school, people used to say, what's oh, your, you know, everybody's so fake around here, meaning, you know, they're only telling you what they've succeeded at, not what they worry about or what they failed at. Right. But now the you can say that to the world. That, <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. Social media is such a magnifier that uh, it's, a it's changed the game, really. Interesting. Um, All right, so social media, number one. Yeah. I would say the second thing is well-intentioned but failed parenting strategies. I mean, how many times have I heard a camp director complain to me that all they hear from parents is, quote, I only want my kid to be happy. Right. Um, you know, like, do whatever it takes. Just make my kid happy. And and I think it's a symptom of parents who are anxious themselves about their kids. You know, they, they want to be good parents. They want their kids to be happy. They want their kids to be successful. And unfortunately, they've engaged in a number of strategies that I think are uh, are doomed to fail. For example, there's something we call front-loading. Front-loading is when you plan for a very specific fear. For example, if I'm afraid of dogs mm-hmm. and I have to walk down the street to get to school, and I, you know, my parents said, well, let, you know, why don't you cross the street before you get to that house? So that's called front-loading, which is great. The problem is I never actually deal with my fear of dogs. <laughs> right? Right. And what I do is I, I accommodate my fear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are a variety of things where, and I get it, I look at it with well-intentioned. I'm not trying to be critical of parents here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also think there's thought distraction, meaning like, oh, just don't think about that. You know, if, that's, if thinking about that makes you scared, then don't think about that. Or even thought stopping, which is like, you know, distract yourself with another thought. You know, pretend you're going to the beach or think of something nice. Mm-hmm. Or just don't think about it. And the truth is, the more you try to eliminate a worried thought, from your mind, the more it tries to assert itself. I think it just doesn't work. <laughs> yep. um, it grows roots. You know, yeah. So, you know, you know, anxiety is really, it's a very interesting thing. Anxiety is, um, is kind of this, it, 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 anxiety says to us, look, <clears throat> I'm here for two things, comfort and certainty. And as long as everything goes as planned, we're good. But as 
soon as I'm either uncomfortable or uncertain, I'm going to give you a real hard time. I'm going to set off the alarm bells. And that's what anxiety is designed to do. It's designed to keep us comfortable and help us feel, you know, be certain. The truth is that life is never always comfortable mm-hmm. and it's never always certain. There's a lot of uncertainty. Mm-hmm. I think what's happened is that parents and frankly even some mental health counselors or well-intentioned school guidance counselors or school counselors have, you know, tried to accommodate kids to a point where they're doing those kids a disservice. They're never actually dealing with trial and error Mm -hmm. or with uh, the fact that there is uncertainty. It's okay to feel uncertain. It's okay to not know. How do I become better able to tolerate that? Because life is about that. Like, am I going to get into my favorite school or not? Am I going to get this job? I don't know if I'm going to pass this test or not. And if all of those things freak me out and I've never learned how to deal with any of them, you know, my anxiety level is just going to, you know, continue to rise. Mm -hmm. And um, I also think that, you know, anxiety, when kids have had a bad experience, what they don't understand is that um, the brain is trying to protect us. And whenever we are in a situation that seems similar to one we've been in before, our brain immediately sets off the alarm system. And what we have to be able to do is to say, okay, wait, I over, is to override that system. And you could do that. You have to practice it, but you can override that system. And unfortunately, we're not helping kids override that system. We're accommodating them. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it doesn't allow them to build their muscle, if you will. Right. And that's one of the things I think I see people do at camp so well is that they allow kids to fail in that safe environment and say, all right, exactly. you know, let's, let's yeah. try this again. Okay, no problem. Let's try yeah. this again. And all right. of a sudden they leave that's and they right. feel like, oh, I'm independent. I can do this now. Right. Yeah. I think the key phrase there is when you said in a safe environment, and I think I want to just kind of Please. dig into that a little bit more, which is that I think the key there is that it's an environment where kids have to feel connected to and understood by or trusting of at least one adult at camp. And mm-hmm. when that happens, kids will are, are much more likely to try something, to tolerate something, uh, to tolerate their uncertainty, to tolerate their setbacks, to tolerate their failures, and try again. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to tell young staff people that, too, especially, by the way, staff people who have you know, grown up at a camp as campers, and they finally become counselors, and they feel very proud of that, and they're all excited, and their sense of that is, I've arrived, therefore, I'm so cool that the kids are just going to listen to me. And <laughs> that doesn't my, work. My, yeah, that doesn't work. Because <laughs> what I say is, mm, good luck with that. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, the only reason a kid is going to listen to you is if they feel that you are interested in them and willing to enter their world and get to know them and that they care, that you, they, they sense that you care about them in whatever way works for that particular kid. And then when you have, quote unquote, and this is a phrase I always use. I coined this phrase, actually, when you have money in the bank with mm-hmm. that kid, mm-hmm. then they will buy into the program, and then they will try things or recover from the setback or persevere. Not until then. And I think that's what makes the environment safe, is that I feel connected to one interesting, appropriate, caring adult here. 
can can parents try to emulate that, or it, does there need to be someone that's a, kind of removed? So I think parents have a much harder job with that, and mm-hmm. I'll tell you why. It's just because kids always save their worst for their parents, <laughs> right? I mean, kids wouldn't dare pull half of what they pull with their parents on their counselors. Right. <laughs> um, and, and I think that's not the parents' fault. That's just welcome to life, yep. right? I mean, I, how many times have parents, you know, a kid, you know, comes home from being at a friend's house for dinner and the parent of that friend calls and says, oh, your your son, your daughter was so polite and they helped clean up. And you're like, wait, is that my kid you're talking about? <laughs> That's not my kid, right? Because kids always, they know their parents' weaknesses and vulnerabilities almost, you know, non-verbally way too well. Mm. And so they always give their parents a hard time. Um, whereas, you know, at, at a camp, there's a certain amount of credibility you have to kind of garner with your friends about like, you know, carrying your own weight and not complaining too much. And, you know, basically like you look up to your counselors. I mean, I think Michael Thompson, who's a psychologist here in Boston, who's written, uh, he's a friend of mine. He's done some great writing about this. He talks about that. He says, you know, one of the things about camp counselors is they've got an edge over parents, right? <laughs> yep. You know, the, yeah, I mean, young, young, you know, boys and girls want to look up to their counselor. They want to emulate them. That's not the way they are with their parents. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, so we've talked yeah. uh, social media. We've talked about failed uh, parenting strategies, which I've certainly put several on my boys. Um, what, what would be the other? What's three and four, you think? Well, I think there's, you know, look, I think there's a lot of um, anxiety around certain world events. I have more young adults who are very nervous about uh, global warming and about climate change. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I mean, really, they have uh, real uh, fear about the future. Um, I think, uh, you know, regardless of what your political views are in this country, uh, it's the level of discourse or lack of discourse and a level of, um, uh, you know, conflict that I think frightens young adults. Mm-hmm. And so there's that sort of real world kind of like, you know, the world is a dangerous place kind of alarm bell going off. And, you know, again, I think camp, you know, one of the things that I think kids need and they're going to need even more moving into the future is this sense of having a very solid sort of home base inside of you. And I think when kids have been part of a community that's very supportive of them, that um, helps them recover graciously from a setback, that helps them master and connect in really important ways with people, you kind of carry that with you. And um, I really think that young people are going to need more of that, not less of that, mm-hmm. um, as we move into the future. Absolutely. Yeah, the lack of civility right now, it seems like, is is damaging all sides. Um, and that's, yeah. that's the nice yeah. thing about camp is that you really can close off all of those distractions and just be present right. Uh, right. and be in a community that's you know more... I guess possibly more thoughtful, certainly more, in some ways, curated, <laughs> uh, a lot more intentional. So, well, great. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, we're, we're running up here on time, and I, I, Cognizant, I know you've got a lot of stuff going on. What are some pieces of, of camp do you feel like could be taken, you know, from the summer camp world and, and, and be used more effectively for parents and mentors and teachers back in the real world? Well, one thing is, I think, giving kids real respect real responsibility that I think that, um, you know, one of the things about camp is kids have real responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. they have to 
be places on time. They have to help each other out. They have to, you know, maybe go get the mail or clean up their cabins or, you know, you know, a lot of kids today don't have quote unquote chores at home. That has to be something that, um, it can't be tokenism. I think it has to be something that's real, that kids, I think, love real responsibility. And I think they like feeling like they're a part of a community. I remember when I was growing up on Saturdays, it was just understood that Saturday morning, the entire family, my four sisters and I and my parents all cleaned up the house, you know, Mm -hmm. and maybe in some particular family cleaning up the house isn't it, but there are other things that I think kids can do that have, you know, that that give them a sense of um, importance, responsibility. But the other thing is, I think, also serving others. Like, I don't know Mm -hmm. what opportunity, I don't mean just to put it on your resume, but Mm -hmm. I mean, like, what opportunity do kids have to actually serve other people who are less fortunate than themselves? Because I think that always gives you a sense of gratitude for what you do have. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the great uh, traditions, I think, uh, great Jewish traditions is when, you know, boys and girls turn 13 and they have a bar, a bar mitzvah. One of the thing is doing a mitzvah that basically, you know, you know, doing some kind of service as a way of saying, this is what it takes for me to enter the adult world that I need to be able to serve others. Right. And, uh, I was, I have to say, I was even at the Martin Luther King junior breakfast here yesterday morning in Boston. That's a, tradition we've had here for 50 years and um, one of the things that Dr. King used to say was that you know serving others is uh, one of the most persistent and important things we can do I'm, I'm, I'm butchering it he didn't actually say it quite that way but that was basically his message right and, and you didn't degrees. you don't have to be smart you don't have to have a college degree you can always serve that's right that's right, right. yeah that's, that's right. a wonderful quote from Dr. King yeah. well wonderful well Bob, thank you so much, not only for what you do for, for camping but and certainly being a part here, but what you've done you know, for me and, and educated us. You know, we have a, a number of your books that we use, and there's a, a lot of, of uh, ditterisms that are put through our summer camp, I know, and, and a, I know many, many, many others. Um, if people wanted to get in touch with you learn more about you or, or access some of your writing, what, what are some of the best ways to, to get in touch? Well, the best way is um, I have a website called Bob Ditter. It's just bobditter.com. And then also they can email me at bobditter at Gmail. Uh, so pretty simple. Excellent. Well, very good. Well, we'll put a number of your, your articles and links to your books up in our show notes. Um, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's a pleasure to be around the campfire with you. And I wish you the best of luck going forward. And, um, and please just keep doing what you're doing. You make camp a lot better. Well, thank you. Wow. I always learn a lot sitting around and listening to Bob speak, and I hope you did too. I think tonight's conversation was really important because anxiety is certainly a very real thing. We combat it in our house here. We combat it at our camp, and I know my friends and and family around the country do the same, and odds are you are too. We've learned a lot from Bob in terms of what anxiety is doing to us, how it's risen, and some good ideas on how we can start to combat its rise. I hope you'll come back for next week's Campfire Conversation when I spend time sitting with Steve Baskin, a great camp director who's thought very deeply on this subject. In fact, he talks about how do we build anti-fragile children, something that I thought would pair really nicely with what we've learned around the campfire with Bob. So that's it for this week. 
Thanks again for joining us. I hope you'll come back next week and bring your friends. Again, we have a very big campfire and everybody is welcome. Until we speak again, I hope you have a grateful week. Thanks again to our friends at Scope for sponsoring the Campfire Conversation podcast. Scope stands for Summer Camp Opportunities Promote Education. They provide children from underserved communities with life-changing opportunities through the experience of summer camp. Scope campers benefit from a positive, safe, and healthy environment led by excellent role models who give them the chance to develop their full potential. We both believe that summer camp reinforces what children learn in school and enhances overall academic learning. If you would like to help give some wonderful children a life-changing experience, I hope you'll join me in supporting Scope. You can find them online at scopeusa.org and on social media at support scope.